Hello and welcome to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. We're an intersectional activist organization working to build a society and economy run by the working class, a society that democratically meets the needs of the many rather than creating profits for a few. Renegade Paradise is a news, commentary, and educational platform based on socialist analysis from activists on the ground here in the Lowcountry. By sharing a socialist perspective and by lifting up the voices of our allies and comrades, we hope to create a space for folks in this part of the country looking to deepen their understanding of leftist politics, but who may not know exactly where to start. Members of the Charleston Democratic Socialists of America come from a broad, diverse set of backgrounds and tendencies within the spectrum of the working class left. What unites us is one common goal, to build a different world, a better world. I'm CJ Bones, and tonight we're going to be talking about mutual aid in the wake of the COVID-19 global pandemic. When Charlton DSA uh, started this podcast, we knew pretty early on we'd want to talk about building mutual aid networks. As climate change continues to disrupt global weather patterns, it seemed that hurricane disaster relief for this region would always be a topic that we'd have to come back to from time to time. Uh, But what we didn't expect to discuss uh, quite so early in the podcast is global pandemics. Uh, But here we are dealing with one in our communities and homes. The immediate need to discuss how to build and support mutual aid networks has never been more important. And the lackluster response from our government has brought the issue into even further relief, as the United States has made no secret of placing the needs of capital over the needs of working people. And as we see the capitalist media marching in lockstep with a government who would see us immediately return to our jobs, regardless of whether or not it's safe, working people have been forced to deal with crowded hospitals, supply shortages, and income loss. In the last episode, we talked about the COVID-19 stimulus package and how it fails to provide the relief that working people need on several key points. Um, So that means that once again, it falls on us to take care of each other. Nobody's coming to save us. We've been forced as a class to rely on our neighbors, our families, and our communities because the people we elected, the government we support with our taxes, have failed to protect us and continue to fail when it comes to meeting our needs. Meanwhile, the results of our government's failure to invest in public health are being shown for all the world to see. As of this recording, there have been 549,131 confirmed cases in the United States of COVID-19 and 21,656 deaths. We're now at the epicenter of this thing, and it didn't have to be this way, and it still doesn't have to be this way. So, as we look ahead towards an uncertain future, there's only one solution that is acceptable for working people. And that's the complete transformation of our economy. We need, and deserve, an economy that works to improve the lives of everyone. So that sounds like a massive shift, right? And honestly, it is. But if we break it down to just the smallest parts, it starts with people helping each other. It starts with us, just like every other positive force for social good throughout history. So in this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Jenna from Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. I will also be talking to Charleston DSA member Chris, who is laying the groundwork for a mutual aid working group within the local chapter. Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is a grassroots disaster relief network based on the principles of solidarity, mutual aid, and autonomous direct action. 
Inspired by similar programs run by the Black Panthers during the 60s, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is a loosely connected national network of activists from many different disciplines, organizing around supporting survivors of natural disasters. The goal of Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is to satisfy immediate material needs in the wake of disasters while also promoting the spirit of solidarity and shared struggle. They are working hard to promote a fundamentally different world, a different way in which people relate to each other. And we here at Charleston DSA, while some of our tactics might be slightly different at times, couldn't agree more. We felt that it was important to get their insights regarding the COVID-19 global pandemic. So since we're still doing the social distancing thing, I'm going to switch it over to the phone now, uh, just kind of like I did for the past couple episodes. So obviously the audio is going to be a little bit rough at times, uh, so please bear with me. Um, Thanks to all of you who are still out there listening. I hope you're safe. I hope you're well and that you're doing the best that you can. We're all we got. So let's take care of each other. All right. Great. Um, Y'all still here? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for hopping on this call uh, today, guys. I really appreciate it. I know that everybody has been uh, very busy uh, just trying to manage this thing in their own lives and and trying to get through day by day. So I just wanted to check in with you all, see how you're doing. Are are you both doing okay? Are you both taking care of yourselves? Doing the best I can. (laughs) We're doing okay here. Um, We have a lot of community support and uh, a lot of great people around. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks for for starting with that, Bones. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm doing well uh, under the circumstances, too. Um, My wife and I actually just had a baby about five weeks ago, so it's sort of been, I guess we were already prepared for a little bit of a disruption to our, our normal yeah. but um grateful to have our my parents and brother nearby so we're feeling pretty supported too so Jenna, let's talk a little bit uh about uh, mutual aid disaster relief first so um you and i have talked before and you and i have kind of worked together uh around hurricane disaster relief so Tell us a little bit about Mutual Aid Disaster Relief and what were the circumstances that made y'all decide to organize and focus around this specific topic? Um, so I think the first um, and, and maybe one of the most important things to understand about Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is that it's not an organization in the traditional sense of the word where, um, you know, you become a member, you get a membership card, you're on a list, you pay dues. Um, you know, it doesn't really work like that. We invite everyone to participate in the work. Um, and so, you know, I would really more categorize matter as, as a network, a uh, network of autonomous disaster relief workers and community members who see needs and gaps and, and organize to, to fill them. Um, and a lot of people ask me about uh, Mad Relief and about how to get involved. How do I work with you guys, they say? Uh, how do I become a member? And I tell them, you know, if you do matter, you are matter. Um, mutual Aid Disaster Relief is, uh, is, is uh, maybe the name on the paperwork, but Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is a verb. Um, uh, and I think that's first and foremost the most important thing to understand. Um, now, myself personally, um, I was not one of the founding members of the organization. I came later. 
Um, but I think that the history of the organization is uh, part of movement history at this point. And so, you know, I am able to speak um, to its origins. So um, I'll do that for a little while, if that's okay. Um, sure thing. So the, the history of the origin of mutual aid disaster relief, while I personally was not um, one of those, uh, you know, kind of founding people, um, is more or less movement history at this point. So, um, you know, we'll start there. Um, in, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, um, a lot of a lot of people went to New Orleans and to the surrounding areas to to do what they could to help. Um, okay. And uh, you know, a lot of those people uh, came from anarchist movements, came from revolutionary movements. Um, you know, that share certain core values of uh, you know anti-racism, anti-capitalism, of mutual aid. Um, and uh, these people did um, incredible work. Um, in New Orleans, uh, the Common Ground Collective, you know, they founded a health clinic. They were able to provide food and medicine and health care to, to so many people um, when the government was failing um, these people utterly and uh, create a lot of really, really important relationships in the community um, to such an extent that at the time there was actually uh, an article in IGD that mentioned that the, the military actually came to the, the, the clinic and, and said, hey, do you all have personnel that you could lend us because we need more medical personnel? Um, so, you know, so their relief, uh, was so effective that it was it was it was more effective than the government. Um, their wow. you know, proven our slogans like "We keep us safe" and "We take care of us." Um, it was it was that um, in action. And what happened next was um, you know that it it became known that uh, one of the people involved in in Common Ground was actually an FBI informant and. Um, this again is is at this point practically movement history. It's on the matter page. You can you can read all about it. Um, and and so at that point, you know, I think people had a choice: um, Are we going to let this stop our work, or are we going to continue to do our work? Right. Um, and so a lot of those same people, uh, you know, well after Katrina, um, uh, you know, had had become part of history. Um, they had moved on to other movements. Many of them went on to the Occupy movement or to found uh, No More Deaths um, and organizations like these. Um, and then the Haitian earthquake of, of 2010 happened. Um, and a lot of those same people that responded in Katrina deployed to Haiti um, and, and started uh, basically engaging in the same tactics and strategies that they had learned um, from working in New Orleans. Um, and, you know, from there it was, uh, it was Puerto Rico after Maria, um, Houston and surrounding areas after Hurricane Harvey and just on and on and on wherever these people could help. And, um, you know, I'm not the person to exactly tell this story, but at a certain point people, you know, started calling this mutual aid disaster relief and, and, uh, you know, became a, a 501c3 organization and, um, with a steering committee and, and all that sort of thing. But the origin was, and the ethic is still this very autonomous, decentralized, community-led, we take care of us um, disaster relief. Um, uh, and, and, you know, this was done for a few different reasons. Um, on face value, people needed help, and human lives matter, and that's a core part of the ethic of everyone who works with us. These people need help. There are people that the system fails 
every single time due to, you know, their marginalized status. They were already oppressed. They were already impoverished. And so disaster hits them hardest and no one cares. Um, so, you know, there's that reason people need help. And then there's also the reason of um, there are there are possibilities that exist in crisis that don't otherwise exist of um, experimenting with different ways of being and um, and creating community and working together, um, introducing people to alternative ways uh, of life, essentially, um, and mutual aid is, is one of those ways. Um, uh, and so, you know, this just went on and on and on, and, and um, today matter is, is a network full of many people who, you know, if it's not a disaster, maybe they're wearing different hats. They're on the front lines of a lot of other movements. They're doing other other types of movement work. But when um, disaster happens, these people come together and they and they see how they can help. Um, you know, our, our motto is solidarity, not charity. Um, and I could probably talk for an hour just about what that means. But <laughs> yeah. in, in the simplest sense, what that means is that we are not an outside charitable organization that appears from on high and, and doles out aid, um, you know, to people that we're looking down upon. We are of the community. We are part of the community. We go to the community and we find all of the time that the community is already doing the work. And so we find these people in the community that has been impacted by disaster and we say to them, how can we help you to do what you're doing? Here are some resources that we'd like to share with you. Here, here are some bodies that would like to, to do some listing for you. What what can we do for you and what do you need? Which is in very stark contrast to an organization like the Red Cross or FEMA, you know. Um, uh, and I think one of the other reasons that, that people felt that disaster work was very pressing and would only become more pressing is, the, you know, the reality of worsening climate disaster um, and everything that will mean. Um, and we know that, that FEMA is not going to, is not going to do anything about this for us. It's not going to keep us safe. And so we believe that communities have to be ready to take care of each other um, in times of disaster, be it a, a hurricane or a flood or a, or tornado or, um, you know, the fires in California, and, and now it's the pandemic, um, which right. is a new one on a lot of us, but, um, but you know, that's what we're up against now, and um, yeah, I, <laughs> I, hope, I hope that uh, that wasn't too around the bend um, and gives people a, a good idea of, of what we're about. Um, yeah, no, no, absolutely. That was very informative, and, and it's a very, uh, very storied history. Uh, you know, some of that I didn't know. You know, maybe uh, some folks that are listening uh, will be able to take more away from that. Um, yeah, that's great. I, I kind of interrupted you there. Please continue, though. I, I think that the other, you know, aside from the on the face sort of we are helping these people and meeting their needs right now, another thing that we're doing um, is preparing for understanding that this situation is going to accelerate, um, right. both in terms of climate disaster, in terms of political upheaval, of, of economic um, destruction. Um, all of these things are only going to continue to accelerate, and we and our neighbors and our communities um, have to be prepared. And so MATTER focuses 
very much on skill sharing. And I, I think you saw this, you know, when you all came to, to Lumberton, um, we focused very much on, on uh, training people in various things um, and teaching them how to set up their own mutual aid networks, their own neighborhood pods, um, and offer just the, the, the democratization of knowledge um, and experience to, to the people that we encounter so that we can be ready. We are, um, you know, on a community level, essentially encouraging people to uh, begin to set up rapid response networks that are capable of responding to threats um, to community safety far and beyond natural disaster. Okay. And, and um, building relationships, you know, is the core of that. Yeah. Awesome. Um, all very important, uh, very critical work that needs to be done. Chris, this question is a little bit more for you. So talk more about your role within the local DSA chapter and what made you want to focus time and energy into building a mutual aid working group? Yeah, well, first, thanks, Jennifer, chopping all that good history on us. Super vital, inspiring work. Um, yeah, so I moved to Charleston, moving back east um, in 2018 from Oakland, California, where I've been living and working and organizing for a bunch of years. Um, and so I got involved in Charleston DSA in late 2018. Um, and the work that I've been doing for about the past 10 years is really around um, solidarity economy organizing, which I think is is super aligned with mutual aid work, both in theory and in practice. Um, and so when I got to Charleston DSA, um, a lot of our work at that point and up until pretty recently has been focused on, you know, electoral work, um, supporting the Bernie Sanders campaign, obviously, um, focused on Medicare for all, organizing super important work to make demands on the state and really advance uh, a much more visionary agenda for what the state's role should be in society. I think right now in this moment, both um, the COVID-19 pandemic and the Democratic primary shows some of the limitations of electoral work. Yes, a lot has been achieved and advanced, um, particularly in the sort of dominant political discourse, like ideas that, you know, the DSA and the Bernie Sanders campaign um, are now all of a sudden like on the table, uh, things like universal basic income, Medicare for all, obviously. But it also shows that, like, what we should expect from um, electoral politics uh, is pretty limited. So it felt like the perfect time to really, like, reorient some of our local work to meeting basic human needs right here in our community. Um, North Charleston has the highest eviction rate in the country right now. Um, but that's before this pandemic when you know, vast numbers of folks in our community and across the country, of course, um, are all of a sudden without any sources of income. So how are folks supposed to pay rent? Um, folks who are already rent burdened paying, you know, in some cases more than 50% of their income on housing, how are they supposed to pay rent? Um, there's a lot of elderly folks and uh, immunocompromised folks in our community too who can't safely go outside even to the grocery store to get food. So there's just a lot of... Um, emergency needs in our community, but needs that can actually be met by folks coming together um, and and taking organized political action together. 
So it sounds like y'all are doing um, different work, kind of along different but somewhat connected lines. And how have the how has that work and uh, those strategies and those tactics changed uh, in the wake of uh, COVID nineteen? So um, obviously, being up against the pandemic uh, has changed a lot about how we organize. Um, and execute uh, not only mutual aid projects, but the ongoing workplace uh, and tenant organizing happening right now. Um, obviously, the biggest difference is that um, we're doing social distancing and we can't uh, congregate. Um, so uh, we have been, you know, I, I say we, uh, and on the one hand, that means the people that I'm connected with through this larger national network, and on the other hand means, uh, you know, my local collective um, doing our work here um, have been pushing out a lot of a lot of uh, health and safety information to people um, about how they can how they can be safe um, you know all CDC and medical professional um, verified of course um, we are, are very serious about that so on the one hand there's a public information campaign on the other hand um, we've had to do all of our organizing in a kind of uh, digital space um, and a lot through social media, which I think for a lot of us has always been a component, but it's maybe been more of a back burner component that's now had to rapidly come to the forefront. Um, so, uh, you know, we've had to kind of find ways of reaching out to people and letting them know that there is help and getting them that help without ever coming in physical contact with them. Um, which is incredibly challenging. Um, yeah, all of definitely. the donations that we received, um, you know, to get out to people, we're spending an enormous amount of time um, sanitizing and ensuring that they're not contaminated. All of our um, uh, delivery runners who are, are making door drops to those who are homebound or in need right now um, are, you know, wearing masks and nitrile gloves, the people uh, sorting and, and sanitizing at the distribution center are doing the same thing. We are uh, signing off, you know, when the last time everybody took a Lysol wipe to the, the doorknobs and light switches are, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of things have been, have been instituted to ensure that, that we're not contributing to the problem. We ask people bringing donations to keep a six-foot distance and that no one who is not wearing gloves um, enter our distro space. We limit the amount of people in our distro space to, to three people at a time, and we keep our distance, even though we have been working together um, since this began. Um, so a lot of little little technical things like that, um, and and sure. really going strong on a on a social media and a digital component. Um, and so we recently offered. Um, uh, I actually facilitated a. Uh, social media and digital advocacy organizing um, seminar um, for people who are maybe more um, unfamiliar with with ways of organizing digitally um, and how to do effective social media amplification and advocacy. Um, so I think getting those skills out to people has been an important component so that people can begin to modify um, these tried and true tactics that we're kind of all more familiar with um, you know, to the problem that we're now facing. And Chris, uh, what about you? How have your strategies and tactics changed? Yeah, well, I think in the most immediate sense, like really focusing on 
basic human needs has been, you know, the priority right now. Um, and in some cases, that's, I think it's helped us clarify some of our work within Charleston DSA. Like, we're starting to do some tenant organizing, um, maybe for the first time, or at least in a more organized way, and really starting to build deeper relationships with other organizations and other formations locally who are, who are focused on similar issues. Um, in some sense, the, like, the, the focus on meeting people's basic needs for shelter for food, for for water and electricity, um, just brings a, a clarity to it. Um, in my work doing solidarity economy organizing, which is about helping people form, you know, worker cooperatives and community land trusts uh, and community farms projects that are about building local wealth and local power, um, a lot of it has also been sort of emergency response, like worker-owned businesses are, you know, having to close. So what forms of mutual aid can we organize within the cooperative uh, community, for example, to like hire um, laid off worker owners? So some of it is just a really like, how, how do we respond to, you know, the sort of waves of, of disaster? On the other hand, it's also, as Jenna kind of spoke to earlier, it's created this massive opening um, to really show to a, a, a broader swath of people, right, like the the deeply ingrained injustices that have always existed. Um, and so all of a sudden, it's also a moment to really think about articulating our vision for a much more humane, just, equitable world, um, which include things like Medicare for all, but also things like um, full employment and um, universal housing. So some of the other social movement work I've been involved in is, is really trying to, like, I think consolidate a lot of the work that folks have been doing across the country to put forward a more unified vision for an alternative response. You know, some folks have been organizing, um, like, a people's bailout, right, with a list of demands um, that would actually be meeting, uh, be bailing out the people, not the corporations, which we've already seen is, has been the dominant response in these disasters. So in some ways, it's definitely forced us to to shift our focus on, you know, really short-term basic needs. And on the other hand, um, it's created a lot of possibilities that didn't exist, you know, even a few months ago. And, of course, who knows how it will all unfold, but it is a really um, immense opportunity to, to organize and be promoting a radically different vision for how to organize society right now. Right. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about um, when we met back in 2018 and uh, a couple of us from Charleston DSA had uh, rolled up to Lumberton. You had come down uh, from your neck of the woods. Well, yeah, so uh, you and some, some other folks from Charleston rolled up to Lumberton and uh, immediately I was, you know, as, as a South Carolina girl myself, regardless of where I ended up, I was like, you know, like, what's up? Um, That's right, yeah. Um, uh, my people are from up in Spartanburg, but, uh, you know, it was, it was good to, it was good to meet y'all and, and interact with y'all there. I loved the way that, um, you immediately came into the space and saw gaps that needed to be filled and just kind of started filling them, um, you know, without really needing like a ton of like, you know, direction. Like it was just like, hey, we're here to help. How can we help? Okay, now we're helping. And, uh, <laughs> 
everybody's I've talked to, uh, big shout out to the Charleston crew. Everybody, everybody really, really appreciated the work that, oh, that you all did there. Yeah. Um, Lumberton is a, is a very underserved, um, and marginalized area. And there are a few reasons for this, and most of them boil down to capitalism and settler colonialism. So Lumberton is the county seat of Robinson County. Uh, Robinson County is the poorest county in North Carolina with a median average income of $30,000 a year. Lots of people got laid off and lots of food desert, you know, there's a dollar general sort of thing. You know these rural communities, I think we all do. Yeah. Um, uh, Lumberton is also, uh, in the surrounding county is, is the home of the Lumbee tribe. So a large majority of the people who live, um, in Robson County are, are Lumbee Native Americans. Um, a large number of the people who live there are also African American. And, you know, unlike a lot of other rural counties in the South, this county, um, is majority working class people of color. And so, of course, this is not where the government is focused. The government is focused on Wilmington and the Outer Banks and, and all of the tourist areas, you know. Right. Um, and so when we got to, when we got to Lum, like, it was, it was underwater. It was still completely underwater. Um, people were still having to be rescued from the, the balconies of, of hotels um, that they had evacuated into. And, and it was, it was really, really bad. Um, and some of the first immediate connections that the first people, um, on the ground in Lumberton made were with the, uh, members of the Lumbee tribe and with the, uh, the tribal, uh, tribal council members and members of that community, um, because it is their community, um, and their land. And so nothing in that area could or should happen without them. So from the get go, it was understood. And, and I remember saying this to you and Nick there, um, you know, this is an indigenous led space and, and that, that, that was, that was a very important component in what was happening. Um, right. What we what we saw when we got there was that people were already taking care of each other. Um, neighbors, churches, um, communities, local businesses, even like uh, everybody was was doing their part, um, no matter how big or small a part they were able to play. It was one of the most beautiful things I've witnessed in terms of, of something coming out of tragedy was the way that that community pulled together during that period of time. Um, it was pretty so, magical. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, early on we're working out of this, this uh, warehouse, which had previously been like, I think an auto shop, the first place that we were at, you know, with a big, huge warehouse and office uh, space in the front, um, and so we had set up like cots and air beds and pallets in the office space, which is where the volunteers were crashing and the, you know, warehouse space was being consistently filled and emptied of supplies from so many people and so many sources. It was, it, it was amazing, um, to see. Um, we partnered for a, a period of time surrounding then with uh, Operation Airdrop, which is like a network of uh, just like amateur pilots, you know, with like biplanes. This is their hobby, right? So they have this plane and they want to help. Um, and the area right. was flooded, so 
so they were really incredibly helpful. And before we knew it, people are saying the anarchists have planes and they, they, <laughs> they weren't our planes per se. We just like made this really cool alliance with, you know, this other group of people and, and together we're able to drop tens of thousands of pounds of supplies um, into rural North Carolina, which at that point, even the military was saying, well, we don't know. We can't get in. The roads are flooded. Um, but we got in. <laughs> Hell yeah. So, uh, you know, and while we were there, we, we saw, you know, I wrote an article um, back then to try to fundraise and drum up some support for this town that seemed to me that it was in perpetual disaster. Um, and I remember starting that article with the sentence, it is sometimes difficult to tell what is capitalism or hurricane, you know, having just arrived there. And so at a certain point, you know, it's like, are you to assist with the disaster of the hurricane or the disaster of capitalism? And to us, there, there really is no difference. We're here to facilitate community and, and mutual aid. That's what we're here to do. And so whatever that community wants is what we do. And, and that community, um, they wanted this to continue the, uh, to happen past the floods. They, they wanted this community spirit and this meeting of each other's needs to, to keep happening even after the water went down. And so, we ended up in another space, another uh, warehouse, kind of across town, and out of there, some folks came through and did some um, decolonized, you know, like herbal medicine trainings with people and uh, had a lot of community dinners and developed relationships with with uh, people in the area. We were able to repair um, people's homes. That's what we were working on when you all came down, uh, repairing that family's home that, that we took those supplies to. Right. Um, so, you know, we weren't able just to push out supplies. That's kind of like the first phase. But then after that, it's a whole lot of mucking houses, you know, because now you've got mold because the house is underwater. So it's ripping up carpet and ripping out ductwork. And, um, you know, we were able to, to help, uh, I think, about a dozen families for, um, do repairs to their homes through some, like, great uh, contractors and construction workers and people, you know, that had these skills volunteered their time and came through and did this for these people and, and people raised, you know, money for us and sent us loads, gift cards so we could get all the materials. Um, and it really meant a lot to those families. Yeah, it was just a, it was, it was a terrible experience and that it was, it was a tragedy. It was traumatic for everybody involved who lost everything, who just two years prior had lost everything in Hurricane Matthew. And, um, the infrastructure in that area was so underserved or neglected that, uh, you know, when the, when the dams broke, when the levees broke, um, after Hurricane Matthew, two years later, as Florence was rolling in, they still hadn't been repaired and the county's out there just piling sandbags on top of it. So they never uh, had a chance. No way. Um, you know, and then you add to that the hog farms and all of their waste going into the flood, that flood water, um, it was red, and I will never forget what it smelled like. I've never yeah. seen flood water like that. Um, so people were catching different funguses and bacteria um, and ca- infections from yeah. just having it interact with the water. But, uh, you know, they still struggle down there, but um, they're still helping each other, and we still have some great friends and 
connections in that area. For me, a lot of that story is, is really a story of relationship building and a story of friendship as much as it is uh, a story of disaster. And uh, we, we still look in on our friends there from time to time and see how they're doing. If it looks like another hurricane's gonna going to head their way, we all get really worried because we know, yeah. you know, what will happen with the, the, the river and the dams. But, um, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we know that we're ready down here to, to come up and help again if need be. Uh, that's definitely one thing that we can, we can understand and, and sympathize trying to clean up after a hurricane. Uh, for sure. So, Same. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you had touched on this, uh, briefly in, in that last question. Let's, let's kind of go into more of a deep dive. And this is a question for both of y'all. Let's talk a bit about how pandemics further marginalize, uh, historically, uh, oppressed and, and marginalized groups, uh, especially here in the South. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, Jenna, your line, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between capitalism and a hurricane. It's like, <laughs> perfectly expresses it. Um, you know, basically, we know that this economy and this political system was not set up um, to meet the needs of working class folks, poor poor folks, black folks, indigenous folks, disabled folks, all the people who are, in fact, the most vulnerable to this pandemic right now. Uh, so it's really no surprise that they're the ones being hit first and worst, um, both in this pandemic and in, in any other kind of disaster scenario. Um, it also, you know, we might get into this more later too, but it's like it is also the moment for disaster capitalists to take advantage of these moments, right? Like what happens to all of the service industry workers uh, who've been laid off? Um, will they be replaced by even more vulnerable folks who are willing to accept less wages down the line? Like I think it creates a lot of opportunities for um the systems of oppression to further reproduce themselves in some ways. Um, you know, the 2008 crisis, of course, saw um, it was, in fact, the greatest loss of black wealth in modern U.S. history as, you know, there was millions and millions of foreclosures. So all of the wealth of black families that were was in homes was lost. Um, I don't know exactly what we're going to see in the wake of this pandemic in terms of uh, loss of housing, through foreclosures and evictions. Um, so in some cases, this crisis is, is not new in any sense, but I think what is new and frightening is, is sort of the scale at which it's happening, right? It's, it's globalized right now. Um, so that, that presents some different challenges for us who are trying to organize folks. Um, but I think one of the things that, again, creates the opportunity is like, you know, impression, oppression is always carried out at the hyper-local level, but so is solidarity. Um, and it, as, as your story of Lumberton really shows, like, it is about building relationships of reciprocity. Um, I certainly know in this moment, like, I've been interacting with a lot of my neighbors uh, in ways that I hadn't before. And so it begins to create opportunities to, like, foster relationships that, that will protect us both now and in the future. Um, but again, you know, there were so many folks who were already hyper, hyper vulnerable before this moment came about. Um, and I don't think we, we even 
can know at the moment what um, what this will what toll this will take on folks down the line. It's it's still early to say. I have a, I have a lot of thoughts um, on this, and I I'm going to try not to kind of chase too many uh, rabbits here. But um, Chris's <laughs> answer got me, got me thinking. Um, so feel free to cut anything that's useless. Um, <laughs> oh, I'd, I'd but, rather work with too much content than not enough. Right. Um, earlier, you know, you had the question of, of how strategies and tactics changed due to pandemic. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I primarily um, answered in a tactical way because, you know, we are so afraid of, of transmission and of, of spreading this thing right now. But um, I, I really appreciated Chris's more strategic um, answer. And I think that, that this question kind of prompts my own kind of strategic answer. Um, uh, you know, as I, as I think you, you know, just from our conversations in Lumberton, like I have never, um, I have never personally myself engaged electoral strategies, you know, while not um, condemning my comrades who felt that they could make tangible gains for people by doing that. You know, I've always engaged um, in other strategies. And sure. um, I think that we, I think that we have seen the complete, you know, an utter failure of, of, electoral strategies like in this moment um in this moment where it seems like the election is is like the furthest thing from anybody's mind right now um and of course it is in this moment where these mutual aid projects are springing up all over the country and i don't think anybody's gatekeeping at the door who did you vote for in 2016 and i and i've seen just on the street that not that the animosity between uh you know, those of us who are not fascist and fascists shouldn't exist, it absolutely should, and they should be stopped by any means necessary. But these people who perhaps uh, have been fed some bad propaganda or or uh, not examined um, pieces of their own experience to any level of sufficient are kind of like snapping out of it and seeing that um, that all of these things that they believe were were incorrect and that these systems are failing them and that um, these politicians they place their faith in are not coming to save them. And so I think there's an enormous amount of possibility now here to create not not nearly a, a sort of like partisan consciousness, but a class consciousness that transcends that and that together in struggle, we will be able to more effectively parse out um you know, the things that have divided us, the very real things that need to be addressed. You know, I think that it's harder for people to hate someone that's standing in front of them than someone that they've never met, for instance. Um, I think that it's harder to neglect a neighbor based upon the fact that you've never spoken before when we're all in the midst of a sort of collective grief and existential threat. And so, you know, Kropotkin called mutual aid a factor of evolution. And I've always taken that to mean that, you know, he didn't mean to suggest a new form of organization and he didn't mean to invent something new. He only meant to point out that this is what it means to be human. And in fact, this is a factor in the evolution of every successful life form. And he was merely putting a name to it that mutual aid is not an ideology 
but is our natural state. It, right. it can be said that we have one at all. Um, but that alienation and isolation um, and these, you know, these kind of like psychological warfare components of capitalism make us forget that in some ways make us forget that we are human. Um, and in the moment that that machine starts to stop turning um, and, and that kind of illusion starts to break down, you start to see people essentially snapping out of it. Um, and I think, and I think that that's one of the possibilities in the tragedy that exists here. I think that um, that the left has, I've been telling people, three primary tasks right now, and that is to, uh, well, you know, goals, basically. I've been looking at this as a three-pronged campaign in our moment of possibility, right? We build these mutual aid projects. We meet the material needs of the people, food, shelter, we are feeding their babies, right? But then on the right. same time, we're organizing tenants. We're organizing people on the shop floor. We are talking about strikes. We're talking about occupations, right? And then on the other hand, I see a lot of people going around right now doing um, guerrilla garden, victory gardens, gardening everywhere, installing solar panels, um, building that infrastructure because, in a situation of true shortage, um, we're going to have to have that. Scarcity up until this point, you know, under capitalism has, has been largely manufactured and enforced, but we're looking at the possibility of actual shortages with the way that, um, you know, international trade is breaking down right now. And and so we are going to have to be prepared to provide for ourselves and our community. So I, I, I think the infrastructure is just as important as uh, mutual aid, uh, and all of the shop floor and tenant organizing, and then making sure that we have the ability um, for things like food sovereignty, basically. Um, and I think that if we tie those things together with a component of popular education um, and inject that revolutionary line into this work, that we just might come out of this thing um, better than we went into it. Um, Here's hoping. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and I, well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not a determinist. I, I kind of, I borrow the Rosa line a lot, right? Like socialism or barbarism. Um, That's right. I don't think that it's written that we're going to win. It takes work, but I do think that this is a moment um, where if we don't, they will. And so, the people who are hardest hit by any disaster are the people who are hardest hit by the disaster of capitalism. And so right now, workers, black, brown, and indigenous people are being offered up on an altar to capitalism, to save capitalism. And the question just really becomes, are we going to allow this to happen? Um, and I don't, I don't think that we can afford to do that, especially not when I woke up to a headline this morning that New York City is going to begin using their parks as mass graves. I remember seeing that headline earlier today, too. And, um, yeah, it definitely puts in pretty stark relief how bad this is and where we're at and the urgency of our work. Uh, exactly what form that takes moving forward, you know, I don't know either. But I do know that now is the time. Now is the time to be 
building these mutual aid networks, now is the time to be checking on your neighbors. Uh, now is the time to realize, I think, our common humanity that transcends political parties, uh, transcends race, uh, transcends, you know, where you live, and focus on our common shared humanity and how we can build on that. We had talked in our last episode here on the podcast about disaster capitalism. How do you all think we're going to see this show up in the wake of COVID-19, and how does capitalism continue to perpetuate these crises? To sort of, yeah, pick up on the last question about, you know, why, how disasters like this further marginalize certain groups of folks. Um, you know, it's been, I feel like it's been popular to say that, like, COVID-19, like, doesn't care about borders, right, and it's sort of, like, affecting everyone, which, of course, there is a certain grain of truth. You know, we all breathe air, and the pathogen is traveling through it, but the reality, of course, is that um, poor people, black and brown people, indigenous people are overwhelmingly the ones who are dying from it, um, that the distribution of, of death is actually not equal it's not the same and it it is of course because certain communities um suffer far higher rates of of chronic disease like obedies um hypertension asthma and you know this is the long legacy of capitalism which have created sacrifice zones right for extractive industry um it's pretty well documented at this point of course that like you know, the most polluting industries are almost exclusively located in black and brown communities, whether that's, um, you know, tar sands extraction in Alberta on First Nations land, whether it's um, oil refineries uh, along the Gulf Coast or in the Bay Area and black and brown communities. Um, also, you know, that this, this pandemic started in Wuhan, China, apparently, which is one of the industrial centers of China producing mass goods, um, both for domestic economy in China, which is, you know, one of the largest in the world, of course, and for, for global capital. So all of these things are totally connected. Um, in terms of what we might see in terms of disaster capitalism from this one, we've already seen at least the initial moves of it. Um, the so-called bailout that was passed by Congress recently, you know, up to $6 trillion of it is um, completely no strings attached to hand out to um, corporate America. Um, and with specific bailouts for the most extractive and resource intensive industries, the fossil fuel industry, the airline industry, defense industry folks like Boeing, who, you know, is right in our backyard uh, here in Charleston. Um, yep. So the industries that are essentially incompatible with organized life on earth and know that actually they, the only, their business model can only really continue through increasingly, uh, more kind of like dystopian, uh, forms of organization are using this moment to get what they can out of it. Um, That's right. I think the other thing that, you know, will be interesting to see how it unfolds, of course, is, um, how surveillance technology and, and sort of big tech, um, how they move on this moment. Because as we've talked a little bit about, 
in the absence of um, being able to organize in person, so many of us are, are turning to, to virtual forms of organizing, um, which just increases a lot of opportunities for surveillance, for data mining, you know, which is sort of the the radical vision of Silicon Valley to have everything online, trackable, surveillable. So I think this is also an important thing that we need uh, to be really vigilant about uh, and be creating community-determined alternatives to. Yeah, we've talked a lot about companies like Boeing uh, getting huge stacks of cash during this uh We'll, we'll just call it a bailout. I mean, we called it a, a stimulus in the last episode, but it's a bailout. And um, how Boeing wanted to basically, if there were any strings attached to this thing, especially the part that goes to, like, you know, big corporations, uh, cities, states, et cetera, uh, they were willing to turn it down if, you know, there were any strings attached to it. And, of course, there aren't now. So it really goes to show you that they don't actually need this money. They're just seeing this as another chance to to make profit, which is what they're legally obligated to do. Now, what do you think about this one? Um, uh, let's get your take on where we are going to see disaster capitalism pop up in the wake of COVID-19. So <laughs> I think uh, you all pretty well covered it, but I, I, I had a couple of thoughts that come to me. Um, I have, you know, since witnessing uh, the mass layoffs and, and anticipating uh, potentially mass evictions, um, you know, when everything, quote unquote, returns to normal, um, if we don't, you know, work against that, uh, I have believed that we're witnessing uh, the creation of a new underclass which will be um, primarily comprised of those who were part of all of the old underclasses, but they will be in an even more precarious situation now. Um, I, I worry that we'll see mass homelessness and that we'll see um, those properties, uh, you know, taken to be given to real estate developers. Um, it kind of always happens after a hurricane. Um but as to specifically the pandemic, um, I don't believe necessarily that that these stimulus checks, for instance, that we're getting are going to go anywhere and but into most people's landlords' pockets. Um, I don't believe that uh, you know a lot of people, even even a lot of leftists, uh, have been defending the the use of the Defense Production Act, um, and I, I begged them all to Google third position as fascism um, because I believe that one of the things we're going to see is that while this is disaster capitalism, this is also war capitalism um, in the sense that, you know, the executive now has the power to retool the factories and to take over these companies essentially um, on a federal level. And a lot of people I've noticed, you know, maybe newer leftists or people who just aren't familiar with the idea have been like, you know, well, I can't stand Donald Trump, but I understand these particular measures, right? Um, or that's kind of socialistic, isn't it? And the answer is, is no, it's not. When the capitalist state takes control of all of the corporations, 
Um, that's fascism. Um, and so I think that it's very important that people be on the lookout for that, for for programs. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if all of a sudden UBI started drain, uh, gaining a lot of traction, um, but not from any sort of place of genuine concern for the people, but as a kind of stopgap to hedge their bets against revolution, essentially, to keep the economy stimulated. Um, as a pacification they, measure, basically. Right. And and also, you know, with the with the rise of automation, I think that, that UBI um, under capitalism is inevitable because you know, they are rapidly approaching a point where they might not need us as workers um, in in as high a number anymore, but they will always need us as consumers. Um, and so what will they do with mm-hmm. that? They'll give us UBI. Um, and so I think that there are a lot of things that um, a lot of leftists may be, may be very tempted to see as um, potentially good or places to uh, – to not really analyze too much or be too critical, but that if we kind of, um, you know, do what Marx asks us to do and be, you know, um, in in the ruthless critique of all things, uh, you look under the surface and see that there's something else happening. I think that whatever recovery America manages is going to be at the expense of the third world. Uh, you know, countries outside of the imperial core, as always. Um, you know, we might come to a place where uh, we feel that uh, as a nation we're closer to to a kind of progressive model that a lot of people want, but um, I would be on the lookout for who's, who's paying for that. And I, and I don't mean that in the standard reactionary sense, but in the sense that all of our wealth and all of our labor and all of our excess um, is, is paid for by the exploited labor and resources of the global south. Um, so sure. I think some of it we might not see here. One example of disaster capitalism that just really struck me yesterday um, and, and Chris, you were talking about environmental racism and classism in terms of, of who has to breathe the most pollution and, and be subjected to poison water. Um, I saw an article uh, that said that black lung um, in the Appalachian coal fields is at a 25-year high and that COVID-19 is going to run through those communities like like wildfire and that, you know, people who, um, even not coal miners, who have been exposed to say, you know, the areas uh, fracking and cracking to these cracker plants um, and plastic production, their lung capacity is already diminished. Um, in my own city, just a few blocks away is the end of the Norfolk Southern Rail Line, and every day the coal trains run, and their whole neighborhood's covered in coal dust where people develop cancer and asthma and all sort of other problems. And so um, those communities are going to suffer the hardest from this pandemic. Let's talk about some ways to move forward. And I think a good way to start this would be to talk about the list of demands uh, mutual aid disaster relief posted recently. List of demands including uh, included free testing for everyone, uh, financial and material assistance, pl- uh, assistance plans for people who are expected to uh, be out of a job, a moratorium on ICE deportations, so undocumented folks aren't discouraged from seeking treatment, a safety plan that addresses the needs of disabled people, and uh, 
a demand for the federal government to honor its legal obligations to Native people uh, by providing medical personnel on reservations. Um, can you talk about some of these demands, uh, maybe share some insight uh, on one or all of these points? So um, these demands are based around what um, emerging demands that I'm hearing called the people's demands um, in a lot of circles. And um, regardless of, of which uh, organization has, has published them, they, they pretty much remain the same. Um, because these are the things that we that we need to survive. All of these things are directly related to people's material survival, um, which is the most important thing right now in a, in a situation where, you know, we're looking at the potential of millions of people dying. Um, like, I want to focus a lot here on the demand to honor legal obligations to Native people because this is coming on the heels of, a terrible precedent being set um, with a reservation being dissolved by the federal government. Um, just, I, I think a few weeks ago to maybe a month ago, time is moving slowly now. But, um, you know, this has been kind of the, the nightmare of, of indigenous people, um, you know, in the so-called United States for a long time that, um, that the government would, would take the land that they still are able to, to live on, would, uh, break even more agreements and would try to, um, essentially destroy the only protections that exist for them, which are, you know, not enough at all in the first place. And so I think that that, demand, um, which I've seen left off of some of these people's platform demands, is really, really, really key because Indigenous people are the poorest people in the country, and some reservations people have uh, an average annual income of like $3,500, and I'm not missing a zero. And um, yeah, um, where people regularly freeze to death in the winter and where the water is brown. And so that's the situation that, that, that many, um, indigenous people are already in, that most indigenous people are already in, on or off of a reservation, quite frankly. And we know from the history of the United States that the genocide of indigenous people is not something that is ever off the table with this empire. And we know more recently, um, <laughs> with, with Standing Rock, that that's still not off the table. So this is something that is a really, really, really big sticking point uh, for me because medical personnel on a lot of reservations is scant to begin with, and reservations tend to be in more rural areas, uh, therefore farther away from services in general. And many times the surrounding areas are full of violent racists who will not even allow certain people into their stores. So what are people in this situation to do? And and who's going to advocate for them? And who's going to uh to step up for them in in a in a meaningful way? Um because without the specific targeted demands, um that is not going to happen. Everything that needs to happen for indigenous people right now is not going to happen. In fact, they will probably be forgotten altogether. And that is a lesson that I learned from Lumberton. 
and a lesson that I've learned from countless Indigenous comrades that have shared stories with me that they experienced in Standing Rock or, or in their own lives at not even part of movement work that where Indigenous people are concerned, the government gives even less than a shit. Um, so I know that's only one demand on the list, but I feel like a lot of people are talking about the other ones. Less people are talking about that one. And we're really uh, I think that's about right. The- we're okay. really talking about the potential for genocide here. Yeah. Um, this list is the only one uh, that I have seen specifically calling to honor uh, legal obligations to indigenous folks. And I don't think even DSA national platform on there uh, has that on there. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely something uh, to, to be more, conscious of, I think, for those of us doing this kind of work is to is to always take stock and make sure we are being um, intersectional and and you know, putting folks like indigenous people first. Uh, yeah. because it's yeah. absolutely necessary. It's critical, it's important and it's it's just the right thing to do. Anyone um, who is beginning a mutual aid network in their area I guarantee you that no matter where you are, there is a tribe local to your region that probably has a website, some way of reaching out. If you do nothing more than take the time to send them a letter telling them that you have resources you would like to share, if they would like to receive them, if they have any need, that you're there just to make that contact and to make that effort. I think everybody all over the country and these these new mutual aid networks popping up should absolutely be um, doing everything in their power to ensure that their local indigenous communities are 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 taken care of um, and are assisted in whatever way they require and ask for. Well said. That's a good opportunity for us to, to kind of transition into the next question, and this is for both of y'all. So as we, you know, struggle through these uh climate catastrophes, global pandemics, and the rise of oppressive state apparatuses, um, you know, we're going to see life, you know, become more and more difficult for those of us in the working class, and uh, mutual aid is going to become a critical thing to organize around moving forward. Uh, so what should activists and community members keep in mind as as we kind of enter this new era? There's a lot, there's a lot to keep in mind, I, and I think what comes to me most clearly in this moment is that we need to remember that we're we're moving in a long lineage of organizers. Um, communities have been practicing mutual aid as as a way of life, as a as a permanent survival strategy for forever. Essentially, I mean, we talked about Kropotkin um, a little bit earlier, right? It's like it's essential to human surviving and flourishing. And so when I think about that, it really, it gives me um, grounding, the fact that like I know um, all of our ancestors know how to do mutual aid. It just depends on how far back we we might have to go to to find that in our own lines. Um, But there are histories, um, and, and as you rightly pointed out, right, there's indigenous folks everywhere. There's there's probably histories of mutual aid everywhere too. Um, so I think connecting into the elders in our communities who who have survived past um, 
forms of disaster, I think that's important to learn from, to connect with. Um, and there, as we've seen in the in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, right, there's like thousands of mutual aid networks uh, and projects popping up everywhere. So there really is a flourishing of mutual aid practice right now. And as such, there's so many people to learn from as we do this. We don't have to be starting from scratch um, and we don't have to be moving alone. I mean, that's sort of core to mutual aid practice, right? It's like we do things together. We we take, we take care of each other. Um, we keep ourselves safe. So to me, um, in some ways, one of the other challenges of this moment is just like the overwhelm of uh, of amazing information that's out there. Um, but just to point out that like we know how to do this, um, and we have we have both people in our communities and ancestors that did it, and so we can we can draw on that strength. Yeah, that's um, that's a really good way to put it. Um, there's no need to reinvent the wheel every single time. And I think it makes uh, me personally, and, and I'm, I'm guessing y'all might probably feel the same way. Uh, it makes it makes me feel a little less alone and and isolated, you know, especially down here in the south. Um, yeah. yeah, and the south has a deep history of mutual aid work. I mean, some of the the most iconic examples of it, um, right? Like the under the so-called underground railroad. That that's a mutual aid project right there. Um, that's right. Mutual aid societies were organized by black folks in the South to provide basically health insurance um, to cover the cost of like burying their people. Like these are forms of organization that go back hundreds of years specifically in the South. Um, and so we have a lot, a lot to draw on just from our own local history. Absolutely. So big, big snap to everything Chris said about, um, you know, not reinventing the wheel and that we have uh, an enormous wealth of knowledge to draw from. Um, I think that it's important to remember that, uh, you know, that this is, that this is what we do. Um, there's a concept that I, I once read in a book called Team Human. Um, and I think he was borrowing from, from some other philosopher, but that's where I came across the concept. And he said, what makes humans, uh, humans, what makes us unique is, is, uh, our ability to do what is called time binding. And what that means is that an elephant cannot tell an elephant, you know, an elephant a hundred years ago had a similar problem to you and figured out how to do it. And I'm now conveying that to you. And now you understand, right? But humans can do this. We can, we can contain the knowledge of multiple lifetimes. We can right. um, bind our lifetimes together and, and therefore build on the work of previous people and, and not have to learn everything over again. Um, and that's something that um, is unique to to our species um, in many ways. Um, is this individual shared capacity to learn and to build um, simultaneously and together and in a kind of like symbiotic way? So I think that that's important to keep in mind that, you know, I have a lot of people call me on nearly a daily basis and ask, um, you know, how can I start a mutual aid um, network in my area? How can I, how can I do this thing that I 
see other people doing. I don't know where to begin. Um, and more than organizational suggestions or logistic suggestions, I start by telling them one of the most important things that was ever said to me, um, which is that the work will teach you how to do it. Um, that, you know, your audacity is your capacity, that you and the people that you meet along the way will learn and struggle and in doing, and you do not have to wait until you have an answer for everything that could possibly arise or everything that you're unsure of. Um, revolution, like life, is experimental. Um, and that means that when you fail, you, you take notes and you see what you learned from that failure and you develop another hypothesis and you try again. Um, the other thing that I would say, especially to new organizers, is learn to recognize burnout. Learn to recognize it in yourself and in your friends. Um, and no matter how much it feels like I can't take a break because the world is on fire, um, you have to, because if you don't, you won't be able to help anyone. And everyone who is drawn to this type of work um, is, is typically the kind of person who, who needs to hear that, um, who is driven to just to just go and do as long as they can, as long as they can, they can keep moving. Um, this is a marathon and not a sprint. Um, I would also tell people that there's something that everybody can do. I mean, who would have thought that seamstresses would be saving the world right now, right? Creating yeah. or assembly lining PPE, <laughs> right? Cosplayers are saving the world. Um, so <laughs> it, it, it doesn't matter what your skill set is. Um, you know, I had the idea before I linked up with Matter that clearly to do disaster relief, you had to essentially have the skills of a firefighter and a paramedic and a soldier combined, right? That there was, that there was nothing that, that I could offer to this work. And that is so far from the truth. Um, if you can organize a camping trip or a theme party, you can put together a mutual aid network. If you can have a conversation with somebody or do the best you can by them, like you can do this. Um, and that's one of the great resources that um, the mutual aid disaster relief is able to offer by, by linking up with us um, is a wealth of experience and knowledge and people who would love nothing more than to support someone who is new to this, who is trying to make it work and who doesn't quite know what to do or to support them through their first burnout because everybody has it or to um, just let them know that they're not alone and kind of um, empower them and give them hope so that we can build more together. Absolutely. Um, there was a uh, quote from uh, Mao Zedong's On Practice where he said something to the effect of discover the truth through practice and again through practice verify and develop the truth. Um, and I think that definitely applies here. Like you just learn by doing. Yes. It, it sounds scary, but on the other hand, it's, it's kind of a, a great leveler. You know, that's kind of what I uh, – 
came in to helping you all out with uh, hurricane disaster relief. Like, I didn't know what we were getting in, getting into. I just sort of showed up, and I talked to you guys, and I was like, hey, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I can pick up heavy things. So, uh, yeah, let's just fucking do this thing. <laughs> but, you know, man, the truth is that I deployed a full three weeks ahead of you and while that might seem like forever in the middle of a disaster it's not in the grand scheme of things and when I loaded up from Norfolk and headed to Lumberton like I had no idea what I was going to do to help I still had this idea that like I'm not a fireman or or whatever you know um so yeah you're like you just you figure it out. So, like, you know, by the time y'all got there and it seemed like I had my shit together, like, I got, like, a three-week crash course and, like, here's here's how you do the thing. Um, and it was just a lot of, like, on your feet. And, and this pandemic is, you know, we're on our feet again. Yeah. Uh, just just briefly to, um, to lift some of that up, like, it makes me think or, or remember really that, you know, listening is is actually like one of the most important organizing skills we can have, right? Like you showing up um, and being able to listen to figure out how you fit in. That that's like an essential skill that we all have the capacity for, and it, and it's something we can deepen as well. Um, and just lastly, I just want to say as well, like I also think these times sort of call us to remember how to grieve together. Um, and, and for well us, right, like, the reality is, like, we're losing people, um, and we will continue to, um, and grief is, is a really important process, um, and it shows up differently for everyone, um, but, but collective grieving is something that's, you know, sort of deeply taboo, I think, in, in dominant U.S. culture, um, but I think it's a crucial practice for mutual aid as well as like learning how to really um, process loss uh, and find meaning in it and be able to move move forward together. Absolutely. Um, I think we're all uh, feeling a collective grief right now that a lot of people don't have language for and it's manifesting in different ways. And um, we have to be able to acknowledge that in ourselves and hold each other through it. Um, there's a there's a form going going around right now uh mutual aid for those um for those grieving right now either you know directly or indirectly in whatever ways that they are um a form for mental health professionals and midwives and doulas and um and and all sorts of people with with skills that can help there to to sign up to do so um and that's up on the matter facebook page that's great. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yes, thank you. Um, so, uh, guys, I'm going to go ahead and uh, call this a night. Um, thank you again for coming on to talk to me tonight and, and sharing your unique stories and your perspectives and, and kind of your backgrounds. I hope that by using this platform, you know, even if we just reach one person and, and make them feel some sort of empowerment or, or some sort of stability through this this sort of storm here, uh, tying back to the hurricane analogy, um, then I think we'll have done our job. So, you know, what's the uh, – how can folks uh, support mutual aid disaster relief? 
what's the best way they can do that? So um, on a national level, if you want to donate to Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, um, that's mutualaiddisasterrelief.org. Um, you can donate there um, to the to the national organization, and, and that money is going to maintaining uh, relief through the COVID-19 pandemic um, by being able to support a lot of these new uh, mutual aid groups that have been set up. Um, money is being allocated for reimbursements and assistance to many of these new, like, um, local efforts. So what national uh, matter is, is really focused on right now is supporting all of these new efforts um, to the best of our ability. Um, and, uh, you know, so uh, funds are a really important part of that. So um, if people are able to donate, that's really great. Um, if you have formed recently a new mutual aid network or if you're working on a mutual aid network um, that isn't like kind of LinkedIn and talking to others already, um, go to that website and uh, you'll find ways to engage with people there um, and be um, added to, to forums and threads where you can connect with people all over the country that are that are doing the same thing you are. Um, so a way to support would be by, you know, Doing the work in an area that it that it's not that it's not being done, and um, keep an eye out for those local mutual aid networks um, in your area. They're probably posting fundraisers. They're probably posting donations lists. Um, the needs of every community are different, and so you know that's going to vary. This is a very a very localized effort. Um, Matter always supports very localized efforts, and so uh, any any funds that you donate. To Mad Relief are going to go to localized autonomous efforts, um, addressing their community's needs in the specific ways that they need to be addressed. Great. Okay, guys. Well, thanks again. And anytime you're around the swamp, uh, we'd love to have you come hang out and and maybe we'll uh, share the beverage of, of your choice once it's safe to do so. You know. Oh yeah, I got I got people down in Spartanburg saying so ain't too far down. We'll see yeah. you on the other side. All right. Great. Well, Thanks, y'all. Yeah, likewise. Thank Have you. a great yeah. night. And uh, here's here's hoping uh, here's hoping we get through this thing safely. Solidarity forever. Yeah, you too. Solidarity Good night. Forever. All right. Thanks, y'all. All right. Take care.
would stand beside us We'll live together or we'll die alone In our world, poisoned by exploitation